Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. So today, in honor of Mother's Day, I've been doing a couple different sermons on motherhood from a biblical perspective. So uh, the first service, I gave a generalized teaching on the biblical view of motherhood and the glory within it. Uh, The second service, I talked about the unique part of motherhood, which would be actually housing the child within the body and giving the body for your child. Uh, This service, we're going to be talking about nurture and affection and the role of motherhood in that capacity and why that is important. And uh, one of the reasons why I'm doing these sermons is because throughout the Bible, there's this idea that Satan is uniquely opposed to women. There's this unique enmity. There's this unique hatred that Satan holds for females. It began in the garden when Satan tempted Eve instead of Adam. There was an attack specifically on the feminine in his mind. And then in the cursing, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God specifically says that there will be enmity between the woman and the serpent. And because of that, if you look through world history, you see how various cultures have oppressed, subjugated, and not been very good to women and the role of the mother. Our culture is interesting. And that we don't attack women in the more direct fashion that most of the previous cultures did. We don't look at women and say, you are only valuable because you could bear children, and therefore we're going to subjugate you and leave everything else to the men. Our culture instead erases women. Our culture teaches that women and motherhood are not special. They're not unique. And the greatest thing a woman can do is not to become a mother, but to work in the capacity of a man. That's new. And it's uniquely violent, and it's uniquely evil. And we'll talk more about it as this sermon goes on. But in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 1, it says, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, how it instructs and guides us, how it gives us wisdom beyond our age, beyond our time. It helps us tap into your divine purposes and understanding. So, Lord, I pray that we would clear our minds right now and our hearts to be able to receive from your word what you say about this subject. Allow us to leave aside all cultural understanding, all of our intuitions, and receive from you your truth. We love you, Lord, and in your name, amen. So, motherhood is such an important aspect throughout the scriptures that essentially the ability that man has to create life, utilizing the womb, of the female. It's so important, it's so valuable, that in one way or the other, we are supporting motherhood. So either you will directly engage in motherhood, or you will serve in a support support fashion towards motherhood, right? So men, that's our role. We support motherhood in the production of life in that way. And women who can't bear children, they serve in different capacities as maternal figures, which we'll talk about more in this study. But in Proverbs 14, verse 1, it talks about a wise woman building her house. Now, it's not saying that men don't take part in the erection of a house, in an erection of a home. And in fact, if you study the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs is given by a father to his son. So the majority of the book is a dad talking to his son, with the exception of the last chapter, which is a mom talking to her son. And in that chapter... The author of Proverbs gives his son fatherly advice about how the son 
is to build his house and to stabilize it through wisdom. And the son can also tear down the house. A man can tear down his house. But Proverbs 14, verse 1, what it's saying is that a woman has a very unique way of building the house. And therefore, she also has a very unique way of tearing it down. In other words, the role of the woman, the role of the mother in the house has so much potential for good that it must always also carry with it an equal and opposite potential for malice and evil. It'd be nice if things didn't work that way, but the truth is they always work that way. The greater potential something has for good, the reciprocal will always remain true. C.S. Lewis, he thought through this point in his book, Mere Christianity, where he said, if you take an all-benevolent dog, how much good can that thing really do? Not much. If you take an all-evil and wicked dog, how much evil could it do? Once again, not much. <laughs> it, might, it might bite you, might pee on something that you like, but that's about the capacity that it has. If you take an all-good man, how much good can he do? A lot. If you take an all-evil man, how much evil can he do? A lot. And then he argues up even to Satan. If you take an all-good spiritual being, and then if you take an all-malicious spiritual being, how much good versus how much evil? So the greater potential something has for good, the reciprocal always remains true. And the author of Proverbs is trying to show us this. He is not diminishing from motherhood. He is simply sharing the unique capacity for good that the woman holds, and therefore the unique capacity for evil the maternal role holds within a house. Now let's talk a little bit about what this glory is. So Titus chapter 2, verse 3 through 5 gives, gives us a hint. What is the maternal role? What is the role of the feminine within the household that can build it up? And what is that role when it's switched towards evil, that will tear it down. Titus 2, verse 3 through 5 says this, The older women, likewise, they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So there's a perspective here. And this is, again, a thread that lines the Bible, it lines the Scripture, that the feminine quality glorifies God in an attribute that, this is important, only our God has, and that is the capacity to submit. In every other religion, submission is always looked at not as a divine quality, because who would God submit to? If God is above all and beyond all, he cannot rightly submit to anyone. Only in the doctrine of the Trinity do we have a God that can demonstrate the virtue of submission and portray it as a divine act and not a subjugated act. So in other words, most cultures look at submission not as being a virtue, but as being something that you're bullied into. You submit because someone who has power forces you to submit. Only in the Bible do we see submission demonstrated by Jesus as the act of having power and willingly setting it aside 
for the sake and benefit of someone else. That is something that uniquely the woman does. Now, it doesn't mean that the man doesn't submit, but it means that there's a unique act of submission within the household conducted by the mother. And it begins, we talked about this a little bit last service, it actually begins in childbearing. The woman takes her body, which is healthy, and she subjects it to illness and pain and labor. And she does this for her child. She takes a power, she takes a a glory that she has, and she sets it aside for her child. That's the maternal act. And then that act morphs into an affectionate act once the child is born. So we're going to break this down in a couple different ways, this, this unique homemaker quality that a woman has. And we're going to look at it in, when it's aimed in different directions. So let's, let's begin with the kids. What does this maternal role do for children that is unique to what the man does for children? The easiest way I could put it, there's, there's a couple ways I can spin this, but one of the simplest ways I could put it is women are really good at making people feel welcome. You know, I was a bachelor back in the day, and uh, I lived with a couple other bachelors. So I lived in a house, so I went right from the Marines, so I did four years in the Marines, went right from the Marines to living in a house with, uh, three, with two other guys, and then we invited a third guy in after a time. So we had four bachelors living in this house together, and obviously our house was immaculately clean and just very welcoming. No, it wasn't. It was terrible. You know, like, we, we, you go into our house, and it's like we had this cheap furniture that we found from, like, thrift stores. We had, like, one couch and two lazy boys. None of it matched. You know, we didn't have anything else. We had two TVs next to each other so we could play video games. We had, you know, like, nothing was done. You know, it was always dirty. We never upkept it. You go in the fridge. It's just basically condiments that we had left over from fast food. There's, there's no, like, cooking or anything like that. And... In our minds, there was never a time where we invited someone over and thought, I want my house to be welcoming for them. I want them to feel like they're at home. I want them to feel like they're wanted. Never did that cross my mind. In my head, I was just like, they get to hang out with me and spend time at my house. I'm giving them my sustenance. They should just be happy about that. I never thought about actually shaping my home to be welcoming. Never in my mind. And by the way, this almost never hits the mind of a man. This is why there's always tension in a marriage when visitors come over. Because the woman is thinking, I want to make the house welcoming. I want it to smell good. I want it to be clean. I want when people walk in here, they feel like they're welcome. They belong here. And the man's like, why? Why? Why would I do that? Why would I waste my time cleaning a house for people that are going to come and, again, eat my food and sit on my sofa and probably dirty things again. You know, why would I waste my time in that? It's because women uniquely think about making other people feel welcome. That's a beautiful quality. And if a man doesn't see it as beautiful, by the way, the tension in the marriage will grow because the man doesn't know how to compliment his wife's desire. Now, this is very important. This sounds weird, but this is incredibly important for kids. Did you know that kids know when they are welcome versus when they are not? From a young age, from the time they're infants, 
kids, and you'll notice it. You ever notice, those of you guys who have kids, they will gravitate towards some relatives more than others. The reason why is because they intuitively know when they are wanted versus when they are not. So some people put up with your kid because it's your kid. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, or I'm related to this thing, so I better treat it well. But then there are some people that just love babies. And the kid knows that they're loved. They know that they're wanted, and they gravitate towards this individual. Kids know when they are welcome versus when they are not. Men are just not good at, first of all, picking up on that cue and that need. And secondly, we're not very good about meeting that need either. Right? A good example of this, I think this is a pretty important example, actually. So my daughter's finally at the age where she needs to be disciplined. She's having temper tantrums, which is super fun. You know, I don't know where she gets it from because I was like the best little baby ever. I never had any problems. That's not true. Um, but anyway, you know, so because of that, we're having to put her in timeout every now and then and to discipline her in these little ways. And in my mind, because I'm such a, I'm such a, a dude, I'm such a man, I'm just like the important thing about why we're doing this is because she needs to stop acting up. I'm frustrated with her behavior. That's my thought process. My wife's thought process is I am doing this because I want my daughter to be able to be welcome around other people. And no one wants to welcome a tantrum, right? No one wants to welcome a little kid that's, that's a little hellion. You know, they want someone who's well-behaved and, and reciprocates. And it really shows because I noticed, I never did this until I saw my wife do this. And I was like, that, that's a good idea. After she would get out of timeout, my wife would always hug my daughter and make her know, like, hey, I'm doing this because I care about you. I never would. I would just be like, okay, you learned your lesson. Let's go do something else. Right? And I would just do something else. My wife's mind naturally goes towards, I want my daughter to feel wanted, even in discipline. My mind doesn't go that way. Not naturally. I'm learning from her. But this is me learning from the maternal. That's what's happening in my house. My wife's maternal abilities and qualities are moving me to soften my masculinity because this has a very big effect on men. Men, when they are deprived of the feminine, are essentially animals. Uh, like I said, I was in the military. I know I could speak with authority on this. In the military, in the infantry, it's only men. It is only men, no women, no feminine quality whatsoever. Men apart from women are essentially animals. We stink. We don't think about our appearance. We, don't think, we, we speak in not the most refined manner. Men without women, not a very lovable species whatsoever. God said it best. It is not good for man to be alone, right? It's not good, man, when, when the guy, when the male does not have the female to soften them. There is a toxicity towards the masculine bend that needs to be warmed. It needs to be curved, softened by the feminine. And we as men have to recognize that. We have to recognize that there is a capacity that my wife has to teach me how to be welcoming, gentle, and nurturing towards our children and towards those around me, to care about others' feelings and prerogatives. This also has an effect towards the community. I always joke with my wife, because she's really into interior design, that I could always tell a church if it was designed by a man versus a woman. Because when you walk in, again, if a man designed it, 
it's just all utility. It's all about functionality. And it's good enough, right? And you guys could probably tell, sometimes in this church, you're like, I could tell some of those aspects were designed by a man, you know? <laughs> like, you might go, go into some areas, you're like, I could tell this is just, it, it doesn't have a feminine quality to it. One of the easiest ways to see it is, you know, obviously you can't do this because it's not allowed, but if you go into the man's bathroom versus the women's bathroom, since I work here, I, could, I get to clean in the bathroom sometimes. There's a difference. We didn't, we didn't create it that way, right? No one actually spent money. It's just the women who naturally go to the bathroom. They don't work here. They don't get paid to do this. They're naturally just like, I want to make this more inviting. And so there are aspects to that. It smells good. You know, you're like, how's that? It's a bathroom. It's because it's just naturally within the woman. She, in other words, a maternal effect on a community is when people feel wanted. They've also done really interesting studies about this. Like, for instance, uh, they'll put two men in a room together, in a waiting room, and they'll put two women in a waiting room together. And when you put two women in a waiting room together, first of all, they will usually sit in close proximity. So if you have a big room, the women will actually sit close to one another, and they'll start talking the first couple minutes. You put two men in a room together, they will sit as far away from one another as physically possible and they will only talk if they need something. That is just something that is in men, right? We naturally go that way. A woman moves into a community and through her maternal motherhood instincts makes it more welcoming and inviting. It teaches people, you belong here. And we'll talk more about that later on. Now, interestingly, the, contribution, the contributions of the mother most of them have been destroyed. So uh, this is going to be a little detour, but I find it really fascinating. If you go through Proverbs 31, I don't know how many of you guys have read through Proverbs 31. The role of the mother described in Proverbs 31 is really multifaceted. She's doing a lot of things that we wouldn't expect because in modern culture, we just hear like women, all they did is raise kids. That's all they did. In Proverbs 31, that's not what she's doing. She is raising the kids, but that's only one facet of what she's doing. She's buying and selling land. She's creating fabric for her household. She's planting vineyards. She's doing all these things. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because everywhere on earth, Proverbs 31 actually did reflect the cultural ideal for women until the Industrial Revolution. Now, what happened in the Industrial Revolution is we started creating machines and cheap labor that subjugated and took, stole that maternal role within the household. So in other words, a woman used to be able to do things in the house with the kids that provided revenue for the household. They would work on the farm. They would produce clothing. They would produce food. And that contribution actually impacted the community. Right? When I went to Afghanistan, I, I got to see this firsthand. They don't have outlet malls there. They don't have restaurants the women in that community provide all of the clothing, all of the clothing for that entire community and food. And they help out at the farm. They are working, working, working. Once the Industrial Revolution happened, it stole that capacity from women. Now if a woman wants to con contribute communally, she has to leave the house. Up until the Industrial Revolution, she was able to contribute within the house. The man left the house to provide. 
the woman stayed in the house and built it up from the inside. Does that make sense? Now, there was an interesting book that was written right after the Industrial Revolution. It's called Frankenstein, written by Mary Shelley. Now, Mary Shelley's mother was actually one of the first, the very first feminists to ever live. And you have to ask the question, why did feminism uniquely show up in the West at the time of the Industrial Revolution? It's because the role of the mother was starting to be eroded, and women were having to seek out their value elsewhere. And it precipitated and grew larger and larger and larger as the ideal of motherhood was stolen, destroyed, manipulated by society. Now, in Frankenstein, think about this book for a second. In Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein brings together these parts of a human body, and he gives it life by subjecting it to electrocution. Now, if you read the book, very interesting, he doesn't do this until his mom dies. So that's actually the beginning of the book. His mom dies, and then he utilizes science and technology to create life. And many people, when they've commented on Frankenstein, they've said the message of the book is about the fear of man usurping the role of God through technology and the man being punished as a result. The problem is, is that what Dr. Frankenstein did was not something that God has forbidden man to do. God has already given us the capacity to create life. What Dr. Frankenstein did is he didn't usurp the role of God. He usurped the role of the woman. He created life without a mother. And when he creates the monster, the monster knows what he needs to be made whole. He asks the doctor to make him a bride. He needs the feminine to complete him. And the doctor refuses to give him the feminine. And then essentially when you take the feminine out, right, the doctor refuses to give the bride to Frankenstein's monster. And then the monster kills Dr. Frankenstein's soon-to-be wife. And what you have is you just have these two individuals hunting one another down. Without the feminine in their life, tempering them, all you have is blind masculine rage and violence. That's the story. It's very interesting when you understand it in that context. She was afraid, she was fearful that science would destroy the role of the woman. And by doing that, it would destroy society as a whole. Now, she created a genre called science fiction. And do you realize every science fiction movie that has become popularized in the last 100 years has depicted that same story? Take the movie Alien. What do you have in Alien? You have men being impregnated by an alien creature and giving birth in a grotesque way. And it's the female who saves the day. Terminator. What do you have? Machines creating one another without the use of the mother. And who do they go out back to kill? The mother. They attack the mother. The Matrix. What do you have? You have that really disturbing scene where he sees the fields where humans are being grown by the machines. The fear of man is that technology and machines will replace the usage of the mother and therefore destroy society in general. So deep down, we know it. Deep down, we know the maternal is important. And yet, even though we know it, we're still allowing it to happen. We're still allowing the glory of maternal of maternity to be destroyed 
eroded, washed away, because we don't feel like we have the need for it. And because of that, you know, a lot of people ask, like, what's wrong with our society? Why are we so divisive? Perhaps one of the reasons, I don't think it's the only one, perhaps one of the reasons is the effectiveness of the maternal instinct is being erased from our culture. And we're becoming more and more violent as a result. It's interesting. And the more you study it, the more you realize it seems about right. Now, uh, Proverbs 21, verse 19. So again, a woman can build her house, but a woman could also destroy it when she doesn't go into this role. Proverbs 21, verse 19 says, Better to dwell in the, house, uh, dwell in the wilderness than with contentious and angry woman. So this unique capacity to make people feel welcome when it's turned, no one can make you feel more unwelcome than a woman, right? No one can make you feel more unwanted than a contentious and angry woman. Solomon, who knew a little bit about women, he had a thousand wives, he knew a little bit about what had happened when a wife was contentious and angry. He said it's better to sleep in the desert. <laughs> to be in the house with a contentious and angry woman. So the feminine role, when it's turned, when it's twisted, it makes a hospitable environment very inhospitable. No one can make an environment more uncomfortable, more unsavory, more unwelcome than a woman if she chooses. So, food for thought. Now, next, the, the importance of nurture. So for newborns in early stages of life the baby has to be cared for someone who is affectionately attached to them. And this nurture is communicated to the child wordlessly. So I, I spoke about this a little bit last service, but they've done studies on children when they're deprived of the mother for months after their birth. So for instance, the prime example would be children who are born prematurely. They have to go in the NICU. Now, in the NICU, they're provided with care, and the mother does have access to them. But there's a coldness in that environment that actually deeply psychologically affects the child. Now, it's not that it can't be overcome, and we should thank God that we have the capacity to keep babies alive who would normally be dead if it wasn't for our time uh, of growth and technology. However, we also have to recognize that depriving a child of that level of affection in those early months is deeply scarring. Children can genuinely develop PTSD for being in the NICU for just one month. So we've seen this, again, throughout human history. But again, we have more examples than this. We not only have that, but we have, say, children, and this is unfortunate, whose mothers die while they're bearing them. We, have, we know about children who are given up very young. That lack of the maternal role, even though these children are being cared for, their needs are being met, something happens to you as a child, when you do not receive nurture from your mother. The maternal role is something that is not replaceable. It has to be done. That nurturing must be done. The masculine quality isn't very good at nonverbal affection, which is why men tend to really be terrible at comfort. Right? So when someone is crying, when someone is weeping, men really get uncomfortable. The reason why is because we don't know what to do. They're like, oh, it'll get better. You know, we give like weird answers like that. It's all right. It's all good. You know, we'll give weird, because we don't know that what that person just wants is they just want nearness. 
They want affection. And we don't know how to give it. And so we're awkward. Think about a mom with her child in those early months. Do you realize that the entire relationship between mother and child in the first couple months of life is affectionate comfort? The child repetitively becomes fussy and angry and upset and needs that comfort. And as a dad, again, I know that for me, and my wife even recognized this, she's like, it seems like you get frustrated with our daughter before I do. And the reason why is because I just want to fix every problem. Like, she's crying, I just give her food, give her something, you know, whatever. But if she just keeps crying, I don't know what to do, I'm at a loss. Because my wife knows, no, what she needs, she just wants to be close. She just wants to know that she's near. This really manifested, it really surprised me. It manifested itself in a very big way when our daughter started to learn to walk. So right when she started to learn to walk, she became really clingy to my wife. And I couldn't figure out why. I was like, why doesn't she want to hang out with me? Why is it only you? Like, she, she would literally cry when I picked her up, and I would have to give her to my wife. And I asked my mom about it. I was like, is, is this normal? Is this common? And my, my mom's like, yeah, it happens all the time. Kids become really clingy to their mothers when they're about to hit a new stage of development. You want to know why? The nurturing role of the mother makes people feel accepted as they are and therefore gives them the confidence to step out into something new. What the masculine role is really good at is about pushing kids beyond their current abilities. The feminine is really good at affirming someone in their current abilities, and you need both. If you just have the masculine, kids will feel inadequate. It will burn into them a feeling of never measuring up. That's why a lot of people, when they have poisonous or toxic relationships with their fathers, it usually feels like this. They feel like they can never measure up. They can never be good enough. When you only have the feminine, though, you have kids who never try. They're coddled to the point of being phobic of everything. They're not brave. They don't want to go out. They don't want to do anything. They're too terrified to maneuver. So the man can destroy his children through his harsh masculineness but the woman can smother her child through overbearing nurturing. So it's very scary, and nothing, nothing can destroy a child quite like that. So a mother could either be responsible for building her child up to the point where they have the confidence to step out, we'll talk more about that in a second, or she could coddle her child to the point where he'll never try anything. And he'll be dependent on the mother and on the household for the rest of his life. Now, the clearest time that we see this is actually in the Gospels. So, in the Gospels, Jesus had a human mother, and she had to wrestle with the ministry of her son. And we see her kind of bounce back and forth. For instance, when Jesus is 12, there's an instance where he goes to the temple, and he's hanging out, and she freaks out and goes and finds him. She's like, where were you? He's like, didn't you know I was going to be at my father's house? And she really wrestles with that, as any mother would. I don't like the idea that my son, my little child, is telling me that he is living for something other than me, other than our household, that he has something higher that he's trying to accomplish. So she brings him home, and he allows her to. Jesus doesn't, I think this is really fascinating, in John 2, John teaches us that Jesus doesn't begin his ministry until his mother actually gives him the say-so. So the first miracle that Jesus performs is at a wedding at Cana, and it's a miracle actually encouraged by his mother. 
So his mother encourages him to do this. And then after that miracle, after his revealing of himself as Messiah, you see his ministry take off from there. But he giving deference to his mother allowed her to be a part of that. But then after that, so she had that moment where she's like pushing the baby bird out the nest. But then she sees something bad happening. She sees some really not good people going after him and trying to kill him. And she reverts. In Matthew 12, verse 46 through 50, you could read it on your own time, Mary and Jesus' brothers try to collect him and bring him back home because she's afraid that he's going to be killed by his opponents, and he refuses to go out to see her. Now we see this maternal nurturing and affection turned into something that would have prevented Jesus from accomplishing his purpose. She wasn't willing to let her son go. She wasn't willing to let her son possibly die. And she struggles with that. And it's not until later on in his ministry that we see her at his cross, watching her son die and allowing him to be the person that he knew he had to be. This is the ultimate call of the mother, the ultimate responsibility of nurture is to prepare your child to die. Because when you send your child out into the world, the world will devour them and kill them, just like it has done to every human being who has ever lived. And if you can't accept that, if you can't allow that suffering and heartache and distrust will appear inside of your child's life, you will consume them and prevent them from being a whole person. Now, why does this happen? A lot of people point out the idea that Joseph is mentioned in Jesus' early life, but he's not mentioned later on, right? A lot of people think he might have died. It's not explicitly told to us, but a lot of people think he might have died when Jesus was younger. Now, this, this happens a lot. When a woman does not feel like her needs are being met by her husband, she might try to get her emotional needs met through her children. And she places upon them a weight that no child could possibly bear. And it destroys, it really can erode the identity of a child when that type of weight is placed on them. When they know, I am the emotional anchor for my mother. That's a horrific place for any child to be, and it could really, really screw them up. When the child does not believe that the mother is raising him to leave, but she feels as if the mother is saying to him, I will provide for you and protect you, just please don't leave me and depend only on me. That message comes through loud and clear to children. If they hear it, it'll prevent them from stepping out. It'll prevent them from moving in the way that they need to so that their life has meaning and purpose and their death has meaning and purpose so that they know that there are things worth living for, and yes, there are things worth dying for. Because when your kid is young, you know what they're not worried about? Dying. My toddler right now, she's a little suicide machine. She's running around looking for ways to die. You know, like literally, like every, she'll, she'll die for anything at this point. She'll chew on cords. She'll stuff stuff in her mouth. She'll try to jump off of high places, right? That's all she's doing. It is it's not for the parent to teach the child there's nothing worth dying for, but we teach the child what is worth dying for. You don't throw your life away, but you make your life count. 
and you make your death count too. This was the most clear thing in my life, one of the most vivid memories I ever have. So when I was 20, I went on my first deployment to Afghanistan. And I remember coming home, and I remember hanging out with my parents, and I remember them driving me to the airport. I remember my mom walking me to the, to the gate and just crying, inconsolable, knowing that her son was going off to maybe die. And she could have stopped me. She could have made me feel guilty about leaving. She could have said, don't go. Stay with us. Get out of it. But she didn't. She hugged me and she let me go. It's not that it didn't hurt my mom. It's that she knew my son has found something worth fighting for and worth dying for. And she let me go. And that's what she needed to do in my life. And that message, that understanding of motherhood, my mom perfectly reflecting Mary at her best moment, that's what taught me to be a man, to grow up and realize what's necessary of me towards my family and my daughter. The mother has the capacity to do that if she can let go which is the hardest thing anyone will ever be asked to do. So the woman in life, in the community, around the world, when they function in this role, it doesn't just bless their family, it blesses the entire community. It trains us up. It makes us strong. The mothers within the church, the mothers within the home, the mothers within the country, they make the country strong if they can learn to let go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you again give us these examples and you teach us what this is like. For God, you gave up your son to die on our behalf. You are nurturing, you are affectionate, you are beautiful, you are wonderful. You train us about the glory of motherhood. Lord, help us to see it this way. Help us to encourage and lift up mothers if we aren't ones ourselves. And for those mothers out there who are, who are living into this calling, Lord, I, I pray you give them the strength to do this, to honor you in this really unique and really beautiful calling that you've placed upon their lives. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for what you're doing in us and in your name. Amen.